hello and welcome to Subject to Change. Today we're talking about the Korean movies Parasite and Burning. And I should say right at the start that the discussion will be full of spoilers. So if you haven't seen the films, you've been warned. And I just wanted to say uh, ahead of the podcast that um, I did a little bit of research ahead of time and read up on Korean history to try and get some background and to get some idea of what the locals thought of the films. And I wanted to mention in particular Michael Breen and his excellent book, The New Koreans. And I read that for background, but I enjoyed it hugely, so I strongly recommend it. And afterwards, I emailed him with a few follow-up questions, and he was very kind and replied with some quite lengthy explanations. So thank you very much, Michael. And I'd also mentioned David Tizard, who writes for the Korea Times, who was also super generous with his emailing. So thank you very much to David. Anyway, so this episode of Subject to Change is going to be about some Korean movies. And actually, we've now had a few episodes on the podcast about movies, and this is number three in the series. For the first one, I talked with Agnes Callard uh, about the Romanian film Police Adjective. Uh, Agnes, as you know, is a professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago, and we talked about police adjective generally and the Socratic elements in that film. And hopefully that discussion was at least slightly less pretentious than that makes it sound. Anyway, Agnes is joining us again today. So hello, Agnes. Hi. Uh, and we enjoyed the chat for that first session so much that we decided to do another movie-based discussion. But we realized we were maybe getting a bit out of our debts when it came to films. So we drafted in some high-powered movie expertise in the form of Abe Callard. And Abe is Agnes's son, and he knows more about films than just about anyone I've met. Thank you. Uh, and that's at least if you measure, <laughs> and that's at least if you measure knowledge by the sheer number of films watched, which is prodigious. Anyway, Abe is also joining us today, and welcome, Abe. Hello, thank you. Uh, and then finally, we thought that what a movie podcast really needs more than anything else, is a world-class economist. <laughs> and Agnes said that she knew just the person, somebody she thought would be brilliant for this, uh, absolute legend as an economist. Unfortunately, Tyler <laughs> couldn't make it. <laughs> so instead, I'm delighted to welcome Alex Haberot to the podcast. Uh, hello, Alex. Uh, good to be here. Good to be here. Yeah, always the uh, Scotty Pippen to the Michael Jordan of uh, economics. I agree that you've got it correct. <laughs> anyway, Alex is, uh, for those who don't know, he's uh, a professor at Virginia George Mason University, and he is the Bartley J. Madden Chair of Economics at the school's Mercatus Center. And he works alongside Tyler Cohen uh, as a pretty prolific blogger on their Marginal Revolution blog. Anyway, the reason that we actually asked Alex to join us was his blog piece on Marginal Revolution, where he reviewed the movie Parasite. And he didn't just review the movie, uh, he reviewed the reviews of the movie. <laughs> and I honestly can't remember the last time I enjoyed a review as much as I enjoyed that one. So thank you very much for that, Alex. Okay, so once again, spoiler alert, if you want to avoid spoilers, this isn't the podcast for you, but we're going to discuss uh, Parasite, Alex's review of Parasite, and we thought we'd pair it with another Korean movie, uh, namely Burning, 
which came out the year before. And that film also got a lot of praise, but absolutely nothing on the scale of the Oscar-winning Parasite. Anyway, Alex, do you want to start us off just by setting out your thoughts on Parasite and the film and the reviews of the film? Take it away. Sure. So my basic uh, take on Parasite, I think, is actually pretty obvious if you watch the film, and that it's that the poor family... They're the parasites. They're the rotten family, the poor family. You just can't say this, I suppose, uh, in contemporary society. And none of the reviews uh, were sort of willing to come out and say, hey, the poor family are horrible people. But actually, that's that's true. And you don't have to watch the uh, movie very much uh, to see this, right? In the very beginning, we see the poor family, the Kim family. They are being fumigated. Uh, they're being treated uh, like uh, parasites. Uh, and the only odd thing about this is that uh, this is the scene is not one of pathos. Uh, we're not, it's even given a little bit of a humorous uh, twist. They seem very accepting of this uh, fumigation. And uh, that becomes clear later on because it's not just that they're treated as parasites. Uh, they, in fact, are parasites. They are parasitical on the rich family, the Park family in the movie. They lie, they cheat, they steal, they poison, uh, they murder. Uh, they're pretty horrible uh, people. And not only are they parasitical actually on the rich family, they're parasitical on uh, hardworking sort of middle class or ordinary people as well. They uh, steal a chauffeur's job and they frame him uh, for behavior which he did not have. They poison the housekeeper. They rip off a pizza company by pretending to do work that they don't actually do uh, very well. And uh, they're they're basically they're, they're scoundrels. Um, and the rich family are not. Uh, not only are is the poor family parasitical, but the rich family are very, they're nice, they are uh, generous, uh, they pay overtime, they pay their workers overtime, they're very kind, they're uh, very accepting of the uh, poor family. They, they don't really do anything wrong uh, in the whole movie. Um, now, we, we can go into many different uh, scenes. Uh, in fact, actually, I'll just mention one more, is the poor family themselves refer to themselves as cockroaches. So uh, the mother uh, says, you know, to the, the husband, you know, you're a cockroach. And in fact, throughout the movie, the poor family are seen, especially the father, scuttling on the ground. Uh, hiding uh, in the corners, in the dark, not to be seen. And later, uh, even uh, uh, scuttling around on the ground to steal food, right? So they behave in a very uh, cockroachy, uh, parasitical uh, way. And we could go into a lot more. Uh, there's a lot more scenes and, and details. Uh, what I think is interesting is how few of the reviews mention uh, any of this. Uh, and what the reaction has been to my post, which kind of laid out uh, some of this. And the, the reaction, I think, is quite amusing. So some people, the, the, the major comment which people give me is they say, oh, well, but the director, uh, he said in this interview, uh, in a certain sense, both families could be seen as parasitical. And to me, this, I think, is just hilarious. Like, what are you going to believe, your lying eyes, you know, or something the director said? Because the director, you know, if I were there, I'd say to the director, look, 
You made these people crawl around on the ground. You pissed on them, literally. You shat on them, literally, okay? You treated them, you called them cockroaches. You treated them like cockroaches. And you're going to say, in a certain sense, the rich family are also parasitical. It's it's absurd. It's uh, And in fact, there's an interesting film criticism aspect to this in, in two ways. So the the reason he says, he says, well, the rich family... They rely on the poor family for like cooking their food and driving them around, Um, which to me, again, is just sort of silly uh, in that my kind of rule of film criticism is this is if people do normal things that should be interpreted normally. Uh, So if you see people in a shopping mall in a scene in the movie, you can't say, oh, that's a critique of capitalism. They're in a shopping mall. Is this consumption, culture, Veblen? That's a critique, right? No, that doesn't make sense. If you see zombies in a shopping mall, (laughs) that's a critique of capitalism. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So here, the the rich family, the Park family, they just do ordinary things. I mean, like we all go to a restaurant. We all have people cook meals for us. Uh, Unless you want to make some ideological point that everyone is parasitical, that specialization and trade is parasitical, but then you're bringing the ideology to the movie. That's not something uh, which the director is bringing out because it's all normal behavior. And I think this also raises the issue of, okay, so why why did the director uh, say this? One, he could just be lying, right? Uh, And it is utterly normal in the history of art for an artist to tell fibs about the artwork, uh, particularly in an authoritarian uh, regime. You know, plenty of examples of this under communist regimes or in previous uh, centuries. And maybe this just says, well, we're living in an authoritarian time. And it's certainly true that if... If this film were perceived uh, differently, it would be canceled. It would be banned, right? Uh, you know, if uh, if some other director, you know, uh, had made this movie, perhaps it would have been uh, uh, banned. So he's probably just lying. Um, or it could be he's just mistaken, right? Uh, the director, I think, is not the final word. Maybe he intended to make a different film. Uh, but you have to judge, I think, the film as it's given to you. Um, as it's as as it's presented, the biography of the director might, you know, allow you to interpret some subtleties. But you've got to judge what it was actually what you've actually seen. So on those grounds, I think it's very clear that the uh, the poor family is the parasitical family, no matter how that how reactionary that might sound. Hmm. So I sort of find that quite persuasive. So I'm going to turn it over to the to Team Callard to see if they have any objections. Um, I think that there's something true about that interpretation uh, in that there is clearly an asymmetry between the poor family and the rich family. First of all, they're clearly different in terms of um, how upstanding they are, how kind they are. Um, obviously, the rich people never commit any crimes and they never really... Uh, heinously mistreat any any of their employees or anyone that we see. Um, and then I would say, so that's one asymmetry is just in the morality of the people involved. And the other asymmetry uh, is that the, the poor family has like an arc and the rich family doesn't have an arc. Uh, they, they, the rich family are the same the entire movie and they, you know, the, well, I guess here's our first spoiler. The dad dies at the, at the peak of his 
of the way that he's been the entire movie. Uh, and we never see the mother again after that. She just seems to be in some kind of fugue state in the climax. Um, whereas the poor family, they have very, um, they, they're not the same at the end of the movie as they are at the beginning. Specifically, the dad is not the same. And I think, I think the key to the movie is in the dad's, the poor father's character arc. Um, he, what we see is that he, there's something that he accepts in the, in the ending. Um, there's something that he was refusing to accept and that, uh, his whole family was refusing to accept about their lives that by, uh, assuming the role of the basement dweller in the, in the final part of the movie, he's, he's saying, I accept that I am this. Um, and so, so I think you're right. There is an asymmetry, but I also think the rich family is, intended to be seen as a parasite. And I don't just think it's that uh, Bong Joon-ho added that during the press tour. I think he, he really intended to put that into the movie, just maybe a parasite of a different kind. Um, so I think to see that, you need to stop trying to connect the idea of the parasite to the idea of the people being good or bad. Um, I, I don't think that the idea is the worse the people are, the more parasitical they are. So I agree, the poor family is way worse than the rich family. But I think the rich family is still parasitical on the poor family. And one way that we notice they are parasitical this way around is just that they, they can't exist on their own. Like they, the woman doesn't know how to cook. She doesn't know how to do dishes. The father uh, doesn't drive. He doesn't know restaurants to go to. He, and there's a bunch of ways in which they basically let these other people in some sense, provide for their lives, like fill in all the stuff that they don't want to do. And that's, in a way, what a parasite does. Like it attaches to uh, an organism and uh, it, that it couldn't live without and then suck certain things from it. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I would say I definitely agree that the poor family is, is a more canonical parasite on the rich family than the other way around. But I don't think that just because the rich family is nice and just because they treat their employees well, that they're not explicitly parasitical on the poor family in the movie. Can I add something to that? So I, cause I, I agree. And I think that there are oddities in the way that the rich family is portrayed. That is they're, they're not simply like doing normal stuff in the mall. One of them is that when you first see them, you first see the mother, she's asleep. She's like asleep outside of the table. And that's a weird way to present that family. Right. And so I think that they are portrayed as being almost um, incapacitated by their kind of wealth and goodness. Like they're, they're not resourceful. There's a way in which the poor family is resourceful and clever, even if they're sort of bad. And in, in some sense, I agree, not hardworking, right? They're, they don't want to work hard. They want to trick their way to success. And the rich family is untricky in ways that are, that work against them. Even when they think they're being tricky, they're not being tricky. So there's this scene where the where they find the underwear in the cab and the, and the dad is like, I know what this is. This is drugs, right? And the wife's like, oh, yeah. Like, they're, they're trying to, um, you know, show that they understand the kind of, like, clever underbelly uh, of, of the part of life that they're not in contact with. And they don't understand it. Um, and so, that like, I think that there's this thought that there's this almost, like, kind of naive goodness in the rich family that cannot imagine or understand what, the, you know, another part of society um, they, in some sense, in some sense, leans on what that is, and I think the most direct symbolic way that the director shows us that is to have this basement and these basement dwellers, right? Even the, not just the um, the poor family, but the previous family, 
where the rich family is ignorant of their existence. So there's this kind of ignorance, lack of resourcefulness, naivete, almost naive goodness or something to the rich family that that makes them sort of vulnerable in their dependence on this poor family that they can't understand. Can I add one thing to that? Um, I, I think that they are portrayed as being very naive. I actually think both families are portrayed as being naive, but one way in which the rich family is naive, particularly the father, is this idea of the line that he has. And um, the line is, is, is a very explicit symbol in the movie, not only in the dialogue, but also visually. There's many scenes in which a line divides the poor and the rich, and the whole movie is sort of vertical based on lines dividing uh, different segments of a space. Uh, but but also, of course, the father keeps saying, I don't like it when our employees cross the line. Like, uh, you know, they, he's doing fine until he crossed the line. And people have interpreted this in different ways. But I think the way to interpret it is that ultimately he wants to pretend that the poor people are not reliant on him and that he's not reliant on the poor people uh, in their lives. And he wants to pretend, and this is sort of uh, when people who are more, you know, when people argue for um, free market economics, they often put it in terms of like, you know, you just have two people um, transacting services, like uh, a work for money, basically. And he wants to see it in that way. He wants to see it as there's these people, they want to do some work for me, and I want their work, and I'll give them money for it. And so he, and so this idea of the line is that I don't want it ever to become clear that I'm basically their master, that I'm that I am holding them in some sense like hostage, like that they, they need me and that I need them. Um, and so I think that is another way in which um, the rich family's naivete is portrayed, that they don't want to recognize the true nature of the relationship that they have with their employees. I, uh, I agree that this thing about don't cross the line, it was a theme that came up again and again, and I was a bit puzzled by it. But one thing that did come out of the books that I read is that Korea is a super hierarchical society, so that you know, in America, I guess you, you know, you would call your boss Alex and you would all pretend to be good friends. Uh, but if you were in Korea, it would be Director Tabarok. And so an employee in Korea who crosses the line and becomes your friend or, you know, pretends to some intimacy with you would be quite surprising. But I, given that that's completely understood in Korea, I don't know why they made a point of it in the movie. So maybe, maybe Abe, your point is right. I would turn that around, actually, because I think it's actually the opposite point, uh, which is being made, um, because the lines are crossed, in fact, all of the time. Uh, and so clearly, we're the whole framing of the upstairs, downstairs, right, is meant to make us think about class divisions and think about kind of a British uh, upstairs, downstairs, right? Um, but in fact, none of that actually happens. That's not at all what happens. So imagine, for example, that you were applying, as one of the characters does in the movie, to be a tutor in uh, England. And uh, what would be the first thing that the uh, employer would ask you as the tutor? Well, they would want to know, what school did you go to, right? I need some references. You know, did did you tutor Sir, you know, Sir John Campbell, da-da-da-da-da-da? Yeah, they would ask you for all kinds of references in schools and things like that. And uh, the cheating Korean family, they think that that's what's going to happen. 
And they, in fact, generate all these fake references and letters and stuff. And they go to the rich family and they say, oh, look, here, here we are. And the, and, the, and the mother says, oh, don't worry about that. You don't need any of that. Right. So there's a crossing. Well, I, I, I want to sort of pick up on a point there. I mean, and one point is I don't think class and hierarchy are quite the same thing because you can move up a hierarchy, right? But you can't change class. So I think I think there is a difference between being a hierarchical society, which I think Korea is, and being a very class-ridden society, which people think Britain is, although I'm not convinced that it still is. But on the point of the forged certificate, I actually thought that the stuff about capitalism, you know, just about had the depth of a car park puddle to me. It just like was like this was just a caper movie, and so it's upstairs, downstairs, and you know the plot has to be there needs to be a MacGuffin in there somewhere. So off you go. But I noticed quite a lot of references to education in the film. The guy's best friend, or the friend who comes to visit him, he's the guy who's gone to university. The young, you know, the the poor kid, he hasn't gone to university. He hasn't been able to make it in, and that's a big deal in in South Korea. Um, and they make the point that um, the poor daughter, you know, the daughter, she's got top-notch skills. That's quite apparent to us. She's clearly smart. Oh, why can't she get into art school? Well, it's because she can't afford the lessons. So they're being locked out of because they can't get the, the credentials. They can't. It's not that they're that they're lazy. I don't think they are lazy. Particularly, I think it's that they lack the credentials. And if you lack the credentials in Korean society, if you haven't got into the top university, forget about getting in, into the chai bowl. Forget about advancing. You know, to the next level, to the next level of wealth. And um, you know, and, and we've got this rock, which I don't know if it's just a translation error, but it's called the scholar's rock which will lead to great wealth. So I don't know if that's a thing or not. And then when I was sort of doing my um, reading beforehand, um, they have cram schools there. And apparently these suck up um, 2.8% of GDP. I mean, it's a vast amount is spent by people trying to get into the top universities because they know that the top universities, you you probably don't have to work very hard once you get there, but getting into the top universities is how you advance. And I think they tried to ban them but then everybody just started using private tutors, which disadvantaged the, you know, the, the less well-off people even more than the cram schools. So now they've passed a law saying that the cram schools, you know, lights out at 10 p.m., which, you know, it's quite, it's quite shocking. So I thought that maybe rather than, well, it's about a bunch of things, but I did think that credentialism and education is one of the things that obliquely it's talking about and which I guess everybody in Korea would know. Definitely big in uh, Korea, but I would point, say, I would argue the opposite, that the fact that the credentials are not necessary is the director telling you, oh no, don't interpret this as credentialism because they're not necessary. Uh, And also uh, on the crossing the line, the poor family finds it actually so easy to rise in the hierarchy. They become very quickly integrated with the uh, rich family, which maybe indicates parasitism on both sides. But there's no uh, difficulty in crossing that line. Uh, in fact, the who in the birthday scene, right, it, which is sort of the climax of the movie, the star role is played by the daughter of the poor family who is told, oh, you bring the cake. 
you carry the cake because this will be most meaningful to my son, right? Because you are the one who has educated him, so you carry the cake. And then there's the uh, playing of the Indians, which I'm not totally sure I understand, but some people, again, want to interpret this as this is demeaning, that the uh, father is instructed to play the role in this kind of play of he's going to be the Indian and then the kid is going to be the, the cowboy and stuff. But in fact, that would be true in, in the British version, right? Because in the British version, the lord of the house would instruct the servant to be the Indian while he just watches, right? But in this version, in the movie, both fathers are playing Indians. And it's more that the poor father, the employee, has been invited to be part of the family. He plays the role of an uncle. Yeah, but I, I think you're, you may be missing the subtext of that scene. Like, it, it's true that they're both playing the Indian, but one of them has to do it because it's his job. And the other one is doing it for fun to to to. He loves his wife. Yes, because yeah, sure. Um, but and so there's this kind of like lie that they're both believing, or rather that the rich father wants the poor father to believe, which is that oh, we're just friends, we're just doing this at my son's birthday party. When it, and he even has to tell him, hey, you're on the like, think about this as you're on the payroll, like you have to pretend like you want to do this. And so you might you know, um, there's a quote, there's a Slavoj Zizek quote where he says that the boss being friendly with his employees is actually less respectful than the boss being authoritarian because when he's being authoritarian, he's recognizing the position, honestly, of, of between the two people. And there's something similar that this modern thing where the lord of the house, uh, you know, participates in the thing as well and is not, he's not like, he doesn't act like he dominates his housekeepers. That itself is, is it more insidious because you know, that that's ultimately what it is. He's re, that he's relying. If he doesn't do a good job at this, he'll he'll be homeless. I hear what you're saying. But what a bunch of complainers, man. I mean, <laughs> if the boss acts like a boss, you complain. If the boss acts like a friend, but you complain. But it's not. A, I mean, come on. people have to work. Right. And everybody works for somebody else. This is just uh, the division of labor and specialization. Yeah, but it's not. It's not. It's not. that. It's not. I'm not saying that the film is saying this entire economic system or this uh, hierarchical system is bad or good, but it's just pointing out that that's what's happening, that they're both, that the boss is requiring the worker to pretend like he's not a worker. That, I mean, that's not, forget about it's good or bad. That's what's I don't know. Actors are, you know, paid to pretend to be somebody else. Like, uh, just, but he's not an actor. He's a driver. He's a driver. Uh, but, 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 <laughs> I mean, he's being invited to be part of the family. This is an honored uh, role to take the role of the uh, uncle and to take the role of carrying uh, the cake. But he's not part and of the family. They also, but they, well, but they're they clearly could be right. Uh, and again, you know, there is this scene. You're absolutely right, where the uh, son uh, stands by the window, right, and uh, the the daughter of the uh, rich family says uh, something like, you know, can you see yourself being a part uh, of this? But the subtext to me there is that the poor son totally fits in, right? He's actually fits in better than does the uh, rich daughter because the rich, because the, the poor son is very handsome and the, the daughter is ex extremely good looking, right? And they're, in fact, in my view, they're sort of like ideal Korean types, 
they are uh, very handsome, very good looking. They could easily fit into the society. They look, they look like everybody else uh, uh, playing around. Um, so I get the message again that this family could integrate. Like it's not like they're they're not discriminated against. Uh, they're not immigrants. They're not Dalits. They're not blacks in the South. They're not even nerds, right? I mean, you could have a movie where the nerds are discriminated against uh, or something like that, but they're not nerds. They're uh, extremely personable. They are charismatic. They're good looking. Uh, if if the son and the daughter, and the mother too, is actually quite successful. She was a, you know, a famous high school athlete or university athlete or something that she's won awards. And it's clear to me that the son and the daughter could do phenomenally well, actually, in South Korean society. If they could get into university, of course. Now, just just one thing I, w- I wanted to mention. I was sort of on IMDb, and I sort of couldn't believe that the budget for the movie was $11 million, which I guess by US standards is absolutely minute. And just what struck me about the film, you know, you were saying about how beautiful, you know, the son and the daughter are. Yes, but just how beautiful the film is. I mean, almost every single shot, you could just say, okay, I'll take a still of that and stick it on my wall and you'd be pretty happy, right? I mean, and just the whole film just glowed and everything was beautifully composed. The house was beautiful. And I don't know who they've got doing their post-production there, but just the technical skills to produce a movie like that I just thought it was just extraordinarily high quality. Yeah, I, agree, I agree with that. I believe the house was built for the movie. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah. So he, he knew where he was going to place the cameras. And you're absolutely right. Every scene is quite beautiful. It's very Korean in that way. Like if you go to Korea and you go to the stores, like the sushi, and you know, the food is everything is very, very uh, beautiful. The hotels are extraordinary. Uh, some of the best in the world. I, I was at a hotel in uh, Korea, quite a fancy one, but not like, you know, the top fanciest ones. And there was a pillow menu. There was like 15 different choices of pillows that you could use from. (laughs) Well, the reason, one of the reasons it looks so good is that Bong Joon-ho draws these um, uh, comic book extensive storyboards. So every shot and and, and, uh, he, most directors will shoot like coverage. So they'll shoot like uh, over the scene over one of the character's shoulders, the scene over the other character's shoulders, and then a master shot of both of them. And he just shoots only the shot that's going to be in the movie um, because he know he doesn't want he he's not like I wonder what this will look like in when it's finally done. Like he knows before he's going to shoot it what the composition of the shot will be. So that's one of the reasons it looks so good. Can I can, uh, go on, Agnes? Yeah, I guess, you know, the thing that I'm struck by, like, I'm, I'm convinced by a lot of Alex's interpretation, but I, I'm also struck by the fact that most people don't see it that way. And I think a lot of that can be chopped up to certain sorts of prejudices, but not all of it. I think that there's something odd about the way the movie relates to the rich people. That is, I think you're right that, it, that they're clearly presented as being good and as doing nothing bad, but the movie actively prevents you from sympathizing with them. Like you don't love them. You don't care about them. Um, and part of that is the aesthetic, aesthetic of the movie, right? So this, this, this birthday scene is maybe like one of the incredible scenes in movie history. It's so beautiful. Um, and it's somehow in the music that's playing and looking at that scene, it's an aesthetic experience, much more than a moral experience. I feel like, like this father who's been nothing but good, 
And if the mother, I think, is more questionable, but the father, I think, really, you know, he's seen as hardworking, whatever. He, I, I can't, I can't find anything to criticize him for. Maybe the scene with the, um, you know, uh, uh, the driver and the Indians, but, but basically. But then you, you see him being killed, and you don't. I don't feel either the first or the second time I watch it, like oh, how terrible or something. My emotions are totally detached from the rich family, and I think the filmmaker is doing something to make that happen. And it's interesting that he's doing it, right? So he is. There's there's the good family and the bad family. I agree, but you don't care about the good family. It's interesting that he's managed that result, and it's partly by making them naive. Um, by making them, um, by focusing, by having you focus on the aesthetic of the movie more so than the ethics of it, um, by the particular form of naivete, like I was going to say earlier with respect to the credential, that the mother says, I don't care about this paper. What does she care about? The fact that he was recommended by that other guy. And later she's like, yeah, I want to keep the circle of trust going. <laughs> she's like, no, don't the trust, trust. These, the belt of trust. Don't trust these people, right? But this idea that they're naive and trusting in a way that they shouldn't be, makes it hard for you to empathize with him. And so he actually has done something to the sort of like ethical sensibility of the viewer to preclude the ordinary moral reaction that you might have. Can I uh, ask Abe a film? Uh, 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 can I ask Abe a question? Um, if you were on the Oscar jury, uh, which film would you have given the Oscar to? Would you have given it? Uh, and I'm only going to give you two choices because there really is only one other choice. Okay. Would you have given the Oscar to Parasite or would you have given it to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Well, I'll, I'll say first that I, I wouldn't have given it to the horrific Jojo Rabbit, which I saw the other day, which was also nominated for Best Picture. But I, um, I would have given it to Parasite, but I do love uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as well. Okay, well, can I ask a follow-up question to that then? Um, how many times would you watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with pleasure, and how many times would you watch Parasite? Um, well, as of now, I've seen Parasite four times and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood two, so maybe that's indicative of how much I, I would want to rewatch them. But I think that both of them are very rewatchable films. Okay. I, to me, uh, Parasite was uh, more plot-driven and much less rich. To me, it was like, oh, my God, The Basement. Oh, my God, they've done that. I can't believe that just happened. And very enjoyable, very watchable, very beautiful. But I kind of felt once I'd seen it, I'd seen it. Alex, you're nodding. No, I can see, I can see both, both ways. Uh, I, rare, I, I watched it a couple of Parasite a couple of times, but only because uh, I was going uh, to come on and talk with Angus and Abe and, and you. Uh, but generally, I, I don't watch movies more than uh, you know, once or twice, actually. I'm not like that. But, but I can see both, both points. Can I say one more thing? Yes, please. Um, I, I just want to – I think that thing you're missing, uh, Alex, in, in your interpretation of that, the scene with the Indian headdress um, is, is a wider thing throughout the movie, which is that the invitation to be a part of the family – is it stops at a certain point, and that's what the line is. Like that's he's saying, I want him to be friendly with with us, and I want them to almost seem like a mirage, like they're part of the family. But then when the when the poor dad talks about whether he loves his wife, the rich dad, yeah. he, he gets really offended, and he's like taken aback because he's like, you know, I want you to be part of the family, but not really. Like, don't actually talk to me oh, about my personal yeah. life. Like that's. You're, you're my no, I mean, I think you're book. absolutely right, but I'm like, yeah, uh, that's how I want it too. <laughs> I want to. I, I mean, maybe I'm just 
I'm sure that everyone will say, oh, Tavrock is just class biased, right? But uh, I, I'm nice to my housekeeper. I do have a housekeeper, okay? Uh, I'm nice to her. I pay her well. But yeah, I don't want to discuss, you know, my relationship with my wife, uh, with, with the housekeeper. Right. Uh, although I might be fine, and I have talked about, you know, our kids. Uh, she has kids about the same age as my kids, and they've sort of grown up, in a sense, together or not really together but we see their her daughter uh has you know been a kid and then has gone to university but that just like that's normal i i don't i don't understand like why that should be some great social commentary when it, it is normal and it's not it's not reprehensible but it's also a sign that their the housekeeper is not intended to be a, a part of the family i think okay. and is not like being yeah yeah okay I'll go with that. The thing we haven't talked about at all, which is absolutely central to the film, is the smell. And that's what that's what enrages yeah. the poor family father. Is and and uh. and and then the other thing we haven't talked about, which I didn't understand really at all, is you've got to have a plan. The idea of having a plan, it comes up again and again and again. And finally the poor family father says, Look, forget about having a plan. Nobody planned to be staying in this shelter overnight. It's pointless to have a plan. You should just forget about it and just let what happens happen. And then at that point, things really start to go downhill. And we haven't talked about the third family either. <laughs> Which, so there's that, there, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, I, I mean, on the planning point, you know, I just think, again, it shows why the poor family is poor. Uh, because they're only capable of planning to deceive other people. That's where they're best. As soon as you leave them on their own, uh, to their own devices. What's the, the first thing they do is they get drunk and they become slovenly, right? Uh, and it's the fact that they can't, or at least the father can't plan their own lives uh, is why they have to be parasitical on a family who have planned their lives. Uh, and maybe the fact that the son and the daughter have not yet gone to university is, again, indicative of their failure of planning. Uh, so... Uh, I'll give briefly my interpretation of that scene where he says, where he's talking about the plan. I think the plan represents the illusion of agency uh, and the entire film. They think they are controlling the situation and that they are basically dominating the rich family. And then the realization that you can't make plans and that plans are futile is uh, the realization that they're parasites and that ultimately they're just relying on these people with their lives and they, they, they're not controlling them. They are, they're like in this subservient position to them as the rich people are to the poor people as well. Um, and so I think that's why the dad then accepts his role as a parasite, as a basement dweller in the final part of the movie is that he, he, he realizes that he has no agency in this economic system and that he is not in control of the situation. And he accepts, as does the man in the other poor family, uh, that, you know, the Mr. Park is his like savior and that he's, you know, uh, sort of just he accepts his role as as the lower tier person. Okay, shall we uh, shall we try and move on to burning now? Is that uh, a good time to do that? Yeah, let's go on to burning. Okay. Well, let me say a little bit about the economic context because I think that's uh, important uh, in this movie. Um, you know, Korea in uh, the end of 
uh, World War II. Of course, it had been under Japanese uh, colonial rule and uh, quite a harsh uh, colonial rule. And then, of course, you had the Korean War. So uh, Korea around, you know, 1950, 1955 was literally one of the poorest countries uh, in the world. Uh, so Korea had a GDP per capita on par with that of like Haiti or the Congo, and not Haiti or the Congo today, Haiti or the Congo, you know, in 1950, 1955. Very, very poor um, country. Uh, and then, of course, you had this uh, massive, uh, beginning in the 1960s, you had massive economic uh, takeoff, uh, a lot based upon, as you had kind of said, Russell, on education, this being at least certainly an important uh, factor. Um, so you have this massive economic takeoff, and then we get to kind of contemporary times, uh, which is where burning uh, takes place. And you have the second or third generation who are now living in a fairly wealthy society and who did not experience the utter poverty that their parents and their grandparents uh, felt. And so kind of a big thing in, in burning is the... Uh, one of the central characters talks about uh, the great hunger and the little hunger, right? And the dances to these things. And the little hunger is like actual hunger, right? And the great hunger is this spiritual hunger, which anyone who's actually experienced actual hunger, starvation, they know the great hunger is real hunger, okay? Um, but a kind of privileged elite person might think now that they can have their belly full and, you know, Maslow's hierarchy and all of that, they might think that the great hunger is a spiritual hunger. So the movie takes place with these three characters who I think are all in one way or another experiencing this great hunger, which is kind of situation where they've got a spiritual absence, spiritual starvation, uh, and maybe they're bothered by inequality. They don't know how to run their, they don't know what to do uh, in their lives. And you have sort of these three young people um, who are in this situation. That's not really the plot, but that's kind of the, 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 the setup to the movie is, is what I would say. I, I certainly agree with you about the economic background. And you also have this extraordinary disconnect between the two poorer characters and Ben. And I think uh, Jong Su actually asks Ben, well, what is it you actually do? And he never gets an answer. He just basically says, you wouldn't understand. And, and now work is sort of the same as play, or play is the same as work. And he's obviously inhabiting a completely different economic universe to the poorer characters. And although um, Hai Mi, she goes off with Ben, it's quite clear that she and Ben aren't in the same world in the same way she's totally in the same world as Jong Su. They can they can talk very normally and naturally together. They're absolutely in the same place. But about Jaime, this you know, she does talk about the little hunger and the great hunger, but she's very much in the world of the little hunger in the sense that she just wants to have fun. You get no sense that she's actually interested in spiritual things. Nothing she says or does suggests she's got any interest in spiritual things. She's actually quite a just down-to-earth, normal, quite constrained person. And then Ben, 
all he wants is fun. And as far as I can tell, I think the movie makes it clear the man is a psychopath and he's desperately trying to find some interest, meaning something that he would enjoy. But he, but every time, you know, so he picks up these rather uneducated girls because they amuse him. But after a bit, well, they stop amusing him. And the most sinister, you know, sight in the whole movie, I thought, is, you know, Ben yawning. Because at the moment Ben yawns, you know, you, you know your stomach drops a bit, right? So the only person with any depth, I thought, was jong Su, and he's got the sort of repressed rage, I guess, you know, and which comes out at the end. He's a, you know, he's an odd character because throughout the movie he's played really quite passively. He doesn't, you know, he isn't able to compete with Ben at all. He isn't able to express himself properly. Uh, and yet inside, you know, things are building and building until finally, you know, everything everything bursts out. Does that make sense to people? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so here's the here's the big uh, uh, red pill of that of that uh, of the movie is that uh, that that ending scene in which he stabs Ben didn't actually happen, and that uh, actually you know he's that's what he's writing. That's what he he realizes is going to be the subject of his book, and he has this moment of epiphany. That's really the last shot of the movie is him uh, looking out at the city and and writing this story about him using his father's knife in this sort of primal revenge, stripping naked. And he sees himself as this like image of the working class taking revenge on the rich. And he is sort of, that's everything that you described is what's in his mind. He has this idea that there's been all this stuff broiling inside of him, like that he, that he, you know, is that it's finally coming to a climax, but, but it doesn't actually happen. He's actually just sitting in uh, Jaime's room, uh, imagining things that could have been. And Ben is going to go on, keep, to continuing to be a serial killer. And uh, there's some cues, I think, to indicate this. I think it was actually intentional. Um, one being that the scene right after he is starts writing on his computer is the first scene in the movie that doesn't include him. Uh, it, it, we cut to Ben in his, in his apartment with this girl, and um, we have a new piece of music that we've never heard before. And, and one thing that you notice is that Ben is acting in this kind of weird, creepy way. He's like staring at himself in the mirror and he's putting on this girl's makeup. And we haven't actually seen him act creepy the entire movie. He's acted pretty normal. The only thing that makes us think he's creepy is these other factors. But as a, as a person, in, you know, in terms of his interpersonal relationships, he's, he's quite personable. He doesn't seem very, he doesn't act psychopathic. Um, and so, anyways, that's this is my interpretation. Is that is that that ending is supposed to, and and I got this interpretation because in the story, the Murakami story upon which it's based, that ending doesn't happen. And so I realized that um, Lee Chang Dong, who made the movie, uh, he wouldn't betray the the essence of that of the story like that. And so he he found a way to to channel that the sort of open ended ending into something that is deceptive and seems like a conclusive ending. But I think you can. You can have you can have that a story that this is all in the in his mind, but then Ben cannot be the an actual serial killer. I think you have to go one or the other, right? Uh, Why not? Why not? Uh, uh, that feels too. Uh, I mean, if you're gonna, if you're, I don't know, if you're gonna go for the reality uh, of Ben being a serial killer, then the reality of him being, you know, killed. Uh, by Jong Su seems to fit together. Or if you're going to go, he's not a serial killer. This was all in Jong Su's mind, 
and uh, his murder is also in the mind, but then also the serial killing was also in the mind. That seems, those two things seem to fit together much, much better. So I think either both are real or both are imaginary. So let me, I want to say something about it because I independently, I, I sort of buy Abe's interpretation of the end, but independently, even if I didn't, I think it's interesting that the only evidence we get of Ben being a serial killer, it's all circumstantial, right? It's like the watch is in the drawer. Like we don't really, there's the cat, which, you know, is going by like all of a sudden now responds to its name, right? Um, like it's almost um, deliberately, it seems deliberately intentionally circumstantial. Oh, sure. And like, like something is being withheld from us, right? The direct evidence is like deliberately being withheld from us. And that's just what the Murakami story is like too, right? Where it's like, it's very, it's very clear that the story is suggesting to you that this person is a serial killer and is deliberately withholding from you any kind of conclusive evidence that they're a serial killer. It's doing both of those things. And so I think that that, you know, it like, there's, it's like, uh, 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 there's something very unsettling for the viewer. There's something unsettling. Like we want to just be like, okay, I know he's a killer. Um, uh, so, so to me that the idea that that's sort of left open a little bit is, captures what's going on in the story too and so i would think that anyway even if i didn't buy your your theory of the ending well i uh i don't buy the theory of the ending i don't think because i think that way just lies madness because you know any film you can just say well any scene was actually just somebody having a dream that's not true you can't do that for any scene. You do it for scenes that make sense. Well, I just think, I just think, unless he, you know, I think I would need more evidence within the film than you gave us. I thought there was a, a ton more evidence that Ben is a serial killer than there is. Oh yeah. Now, I agree, and I think the director deliberately wanted to leave it open and deliberately wanted to you know, make us unsure. But I think he failed miserably because I thought it was absolutely clear that Ben is a psychopath and that he is a serial killer. What? You know, he oh, talks okay. about, no, 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 let me, let me, let me adduce some of my evidence. Well, um, you were on a jury? If I was on a jury, yeah, let me put it like this. Hamlet makes a big mistake by not killing Claudius. Luckily, Jong Su doesn't make the same mistake in this film. He just gets on with it. I think, you know, sometimes, you know, good enough is good enough. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the film The Vanishing, where basically the, basically the girl is kidnapped and the boyfriend searches for her for years and years. And eventually somebody contacts him saying, I can show you what happened. I can tell you what happened to your girlfriend. Uh, but to find out, you have to take the pill. So the guy, you're screaming at the guy through the cinema don't take the pill. But he takes the pill and he wakes up inside a coffin buried alive. And I think, no, what's happened at the end of the film is that Ben has invited him out and says, I'll tell you what happened to Jaime. And he would have found out, but he took, he didn't take the pill. He, uh, you know, he just, he just got on with it. Now, but, but Ben didn't invite him out. It was the other way around. He invited Ben out. Because Ben says, I thought we were meeting with Jaime. Oh, I would need to go back and look at it. But uh, my reading of that was that Ben had said, I was going to tell you about Jaime or something of that sort. But, but, maybe, but maybe I've got that wrong. I'm not 100% sure. But yeah, putting on the makeup at the end. I mean, this is the ritual that takes place after the person has become boring. 
Right? Yeah, but that's but, but that ritual quite quite clearly, quite clearly. And uh, so, I mean, I'm just saying that high me has been killed, and we're led to that. And admittedly, it's not evidence at all. But I think the scene of the calf being dragged off, and you're looking at his eyes as it's been dragged off unwillingly. I think that's uh, that's intended to be sort of an image of what happened to high me, and you know, the watch and all the other trinkets. I mean, I think it's very clear. And then he says. And I think he, I think I read somewhere that in the original Korean he says I like it. He says I find it very interesting when I see humans cry, and I think in the movie in the subtitles when I see people cry. But he actually says when I see humans cry, and he clearly clearly doesn't see himself as human. And then he talks about when he's making when he's making the meal, he talks about that uh, that the food is an offering to the gods, and this is a, and this is an offering to me. And I think, oh, it's it's a metaphor. Well, I think quite clearly the metaphor that we've been given is that Ben sees himself as a god, sort of different from 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 other people. One piece of evidence uh, which is that it goes against Abe's theory, uh, and that Jong Su actually does uh, kill Ben, is the Jong Su's father uh, has also got violent tendencies. Right. And uh, uh, so there's some family uh, history of acting out uh, violently. Right. And the knives actually exist. Okay, he has the knives. Uh, So that suggests that this this is uh, real more than imaginary. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I don't think that that I I think that he's a very, very ineffectual person, Jung Su. And, and we don't ever see him really do anything like that, harm anyone, yeah. breach any serious. And so I, I think that he's just different from his dad. I mean, fathers and sons don't need to be the same. And I actually think it goes the other way. I think his um, writing of this story about him taking revenge on Ben is him imagining himself to be this violent, uh, vengeful person where he's not only taking revenge for Jaime's death, but really for everything that's been done to his father and for in general, the way that he feels his class has been slighted by Ben's class. Uh, but, but that's, that's all in his imagination, I think. But, but um, I, I actually don't agree with you guys that um, the movie is ambiguous about him being a serial killer. And maybe this is partly why I think it's easier for me to separate that from what I see as the imaginary ending. I think it's pretty explicit about him being a serial killer. Um, we, every line in the conversation about him burning greenhouses directly explains what he's going to do and why he's doing it uh, to these women he's killing. And I actually, I, maybe that's a slight problem I have with the movie, although I don't have many, is that this, the original story is much more ambiguous. I mean, there's no watch in the story. There's no, uh, in the original story, the only thing he really has is that conversation with him. Right. I thought, though, the original story, um, I'm not a big fan of Murakami. I not a big fan of magical realism where just anything can happen. And it's a very slight story. And he's been incredibly faithful to it in that he makes, you know, for example, quite oddly, he makes Jong Su a writer. And it doesn't really fit with his his background generally. It's quite surprising and it's it's quite an odd fit in in the film. But he sticks pretty religiously to the Murakami story. But then there's a ton of stuff which he then puts into the film, which of which obviously don't appear in the story at all. So everything that's in the Murakami story is in the film, but certainly not vice versa. It goes into lots of other places. Agnes, um, I came up with this brilliant with this brilliant question for you, and it's good for Alex too. So basically, I want you to imagine that that, that Agnes Callard is taking part in some kind of an experiment, and she is 
duplicated. Well, she's actually, she goes into the machine and two copies come out. And unfortunately, there's a malfunction in the first copy. You know, the original Agnes is sort of, you know, destroyed in the process. So now there's two Agneses. And one of these Agneses is absolutely identical, um, except that due to a malfunction, there's just one slight difference, which is that she's max. She wants to maximize utility. This is this is this is the big difference, and this is the thing I thought Alex might like because she's an economical woman. All she wants is to maximize utility. And the other Agnes, she's identical to the first Agnes as well, except that all memory of watching Burning and Parasite has been deleted. So. The memory, the memory of watching Burning and Parasite is gone. Yeah, she, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. The third Agnes can't remember that. And then, for philosophical reasons, the third Agnes is in a trolley, <laughs> heading towards the multiplex, right? <laughs> and the second Agnes is standing by the lever, <laughs> and if she pulls it one way, right, right, <laughs> she'll go into Burning, and if she pulls it the other way, she'll go into Parasite. So it seems like a very complicated way of asking. You've got to pin down philosophers, Alex. They're, yeah. they're very tricky, but I, this is foolproof. There is no way she can escape from this question. This is the, this is the gentlest trolley problem there ever was. Uh, yeah, I don't mind saying I like certain movies better than others. Uh, uh, I th- I mean, I'm not sure what you are responding to. You know, I once had a conversation with Tyler Cowen about the overrated, no. underrated thing, where what I said to him was that um, saying that something is overrated involves actually three judgments. So it's very complex. You have to think you know what the value of the thing is. You have to think you know what most people think the value of the thing is. And you have to think that um, your assessment is better than most. And for me, for most things, I can't do one of those three things. So it would like, I I don't feel capable of answering for most things because I I can't do the whole trio. But um, if you just ask me, which do I like better? um, And you know, which is what the utility question is here. um, It's a little bit. So, so Parasite's more enjoyable movie. It's more fun to watch. Burning's a better movie in my view. Um, So uh, I guess I would pick Burning. Like uh, I would, I would say she, she'll have a less fun time, but overall the utility will be higher in her life because she will be keep thinking about the movie. I don't think Parasite gives me that much to think about, um, but I think Burning is really a deep movie. Um, and for me, one of the like the bits of it that I'm thinking about um, that is, stays with me is um, this parallelism between two scenes. So one is the sex scene with Haim, uh, with uh, Su and Jaime, which is it's very oddly filmed. It's almost a little bit like a, um, there's a lot of alienation between the two of them. And then there's, there's very little focus on her response. So that, that's that scene. And then the final scene with Jiangsu and Ben, it's filmed very similarly to the sex scene. It's like this very intimate murder, right? And the stabbing of Ben is kind of like the having sex with Jaime. And it's just really weird that the movie takes these two scenes and parallels them in this way. Um, and that it kind of um, turns Jong Su like he he's kind of you know in some way into Jaime and into finding her and figuring out what happened to her and that turns into a kind of obsession with Ben right so he sort of comes to stand in the relation to Ben than he stood to Jaime earlier somehow that's weird and interesting and it's something that the movie does with its material that goes far over and above the story um, and I don't know why. That, you know, 
happened, but I find interesting to think about and it's compelling. So there's that sort of thing in Burning that I, even though Parasite's much more beautiful and it's much more fun to watch, I would pick Burning. I um, would just say that one of the things the director said was, well, one of the things I read, and I think it's right, is that the director went out of his way to make it not beautiful. And I gather that there were some scenes when he's running to find the greenhouses in the in the morning where they have the fog because it's a very foggy part. And a lot of the scenes were just too beautiful, so they so they took them out of the movie. And 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 right at the start, you start off, you know, the camera is quite shaky, right? And it's kind of like it's just a point of view following Ben around like another person just just watching. Whereas if you compare it with with you know Parasite, where the camera just glides everywhere, it goes in, it goes out, it goes across. It's just absolutely gorgeous in every single shot, and it's clearly intended to be a much more much rawer experience and. One of the things I noticed, though, was that it, that every single shot in the film, I mean, I think this is a point Abe was making, almost every single shot in the film is either seen through jong Su's eyes or it's of him. He's in just about every single shot. It's quite noticeable. And sometimes they cut off the third character and you just see him talking to Ben. And, and they're quite careful how they sort of block the scene whether it's the three of them or just two of them, but he's in every single one of these shots, which I thought, I don't quite know what the intention of that was, but it certainly gives the, uh, the film a certain, a certain tone. So, so Alex, what was your feeling about, uh, about the two films I, I, you know, comparatively? Uh, that has been said. Uh, uh, on the, the death scene in, in Burning, it's, it is erotic. Uh, there's some Ben is almost orgasmic. I I agree with that. So I think I hadn't actually connected it the way Agnes had to the sex scene. But once she said that, I think that's immediately true. On on comparing the two films, um, yeah, look here for the audience is is sort of the truth. Burning is boring, right? It is a boring movie until the last five minutes. Okay, and then everything else in the movie takes on a whole new perspective, right? And uh, Burning almost demands to be watched twice. Um, and Parasite is interesting every single moment, right? Every single moment, uh, it, it builds and, it, and there's moments and there are highlights and, and something is happening and, and ding and ding and pow. And everything, something's interesting. Something interesting is on the screen. Something interesting has been said at every single moment. And Burning is the, the exact opposite. Nothing interesting actually happens. Nothing until the very last scene. Um, to me, that that's frustrating. Uh, I understand sort of why it was done. Um, and but uh, if I were in the movie theater, uh, yeah, I would be I would it, it's it's frustrating to watch. I did not watch it all in one in one go because um, I just did get bored. Uh, I was glad to have finished it. And, you know, to, in retrospect, it, it definitely provides lots of things to uh, think about and will probably stay with me uh, longer maybe than uh, Parasite. Uh, but it was a little bit of a slog. Abe, hey, what was your take from, you know, just if you were having to choose, um, let's, let's put you back in the jury and you're having to choose between Parasite this time and, uh, and uh, Burning. Yeah, well, the thing is, even I love ranking movies, and it's a hard choice even for me, uh, because I, I really love both of these movies. Uh, I've seen both of them many times, and I, uh, I, I guess I, I would agree with Alex, not that Burning is boring, but that it's very different in, in tone from Parasite. Um, 
each scene, rather than feeling that it naturally flows to the next, kind of it cuts away and you think, okay, what was the point of that scene? And so it makes you think about it a lot more after the movie's over. But I think about burning a lot more than I think about Parasite. Like, I think about it probably once every three days. Uh, and, and because I myself make, you know, movies, short movies at, at right now, but uh, it, it also has had an influence on me. And so I'm going to have to say burning. Yeah, I, I, I don't have the difficulty that, that maybe some of you do. I, I thought Burning was far and away the better movie. And I guess I've become habituated to what they call slow cinema. And I guess this is sort of slow cinema, and I'm kind of quite comfortable with it. And maybe I, I watched it a second time for this podcast, and I wondered if I maybe enjoyed it more this time around because just this sense of mounting dread and just the horribleness of what was happening was perhaps more evident on a second viewing. And I just found it absolutely compelling. And so, you know, scenes like, you know, the calf being dragged away, you know, just, you know, you can almost see Hamie's face just at that point. And it really is, for me at least, it's like being kicked in the stomach. So I wouldn't say that, you know, scenes like that are boring. And even little touches like when he's sitting outside the apartment and the police go by, uh, and, you know, they're looking very suspiciously at him. And, you know, that sort of just fuels that this is the sense that, you know, you've got this this world of wealth, you know, at the incredibly young age of about 30, and he's just in another universe, and the police are protecting him. But people like, you know, jong Su, you know, are outsiders. Uh, so, yeah, for me, almost every every scene in Burning, I actually found I could get something out of. But it is... It is. I mean, Alex is right. It is. For all that, it is. It is. It is extremely slow. I. I am. Um, I, I think that we sort of skipped over what I take to be the most important thing about the movie, which is the little hunger, big hunger thing. And Alex was saying that um, it seems that uh, Jaime doesn't ha- seem to have much of a great hunger. And I actually, I agree. I think, in fact, I think her character is a bit undefined in the movie. And then I think, uh, he, and then he was pointing out also that Ben. He only seems interested in play. And, and I think we can connect this to the fact that he sees himself as a god, or maybe is a god, um, it, namely that he, he doesn't have a great hunger in life. He, he, he's like a god coming down to earth and looking at human beings, and he like doesn't understand what makes them tick. And so the only thing that interests him in life is basically like snuffing out people like candles because it, it shows him that he has some kind of control. He's like a someone looking down at a, sorry, there's a lot of metaphors in a row, but someone looking down at like a, you know, little model village and like crushing a, a house or something that he, he, he's like playing with these people. And on the other hand, contrasting Ben, jong Su has a, a very strong, great hunger. Um, it comes in many different forms. He wants to, it seems that he wants to have a better life for his family he wants to avenge his dad. He wants to. He he is infatuated with Jaime. He wants to be in a relationship with her. He wants to be a good writer. So I think that the central idea of the movie—it's a very complex movie. So I can't say that this is right, but this is just my current interpretation: is that um, having this great hunger is like a blessing and a curse because, on the one hand, it's never really fulfilled, and but on the other hand, the fact that it's never really fulfilled gives your life a purpose. And so Jung Su is living life kind of always with this mounting sense of I'm trying to reach for something, you know. Uh, it's like a, it's like this Greek punishment that he's like trying to reach for the fruit and it keeps uh, it keeps slipping away from his hands. But on the other hand, he has something in his life. 
he has he has uh, this novel that he's trying to write. He has this woman that he loves, and he you know, and he has like this all these thoughts going through his head all the time. Whereas Ben doesn't have anything in life. I mean, he's I, I, you read the yawning as like he becomes tired of the woman and eventually wants to kill her. But I think he's yawning from the beginning. I don't think he's ever interested in the women. He's it's just it's all uh, he's waiting until he can kill them, and so. Uh, and so in a way, it seems like he's in this really godlike position that he drives this nice sports car. He has this long parade of women. He's like just this kind of domineering, like charismatic person. But actually his life is empty and, and Jong Su's life is full of, uh, full of hunger. And so I think that, uh, yeah, anyways, that's my Um But I mean, I agree with pretty much all of that, except the bit about the yawning, because the only time we see Ben yawn is when the girl is sort of behaving in a silly way and he yawns. No, twice. Yeah, you see it, yeah, you see it, tw- oh, yeah, you oh, see yeah, it twice, yeah, yeah. but in both occasions, it seems to be just before the moment when he decides to kill them. So I think the yawning is, okay, I thought you'd be interesting, but yet again, you're not. And now I have this urge building up inside me and now you're boring to me. It's time to move on. That was my take. But he's never. But he never displays interest in the women, right? Like he he never is kind to Jaime. He's sort of. I mean, maybe that's part of what she finds attractive in him is that he's sort of mysterious and he's like kind of uh, closed off, and she feels like she wants to understand yeah, what him. What did you find? Uh, as John's- what did you find attractive about the super rich Porsche driving Ben? <laughs> Oh, I don't know. <laughs> He's much nicer to her than Jong Su is, who calls her a slut, right? That's true. Uh, but that 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 niceness is <laughs> maybe this is a recurring theme, a lie. Uh, and uh, and Jong Su's uh, being mean to her and calling her a slut and not really knowing how to communicate with her and make her happy is a sign of his being a genuine person. So can I can I ask if this relates to the thing that puzzles me? It really puzzles me about this movie. I almost feel like this is a movie made by someone who struggles to connect with people. Because Jung Soo, like, can't connect with Jaime. He can't talk to her. Like, the whole beginning part of their relationship is, like, her being like, okay, want to go outside? Okay, do you want to go on a date? Do you want to hang out together? Do you want to come to my apartment? And he's, like, just silent and frozen, right? And the sex scene is weird where he seems alienated from her. Um, and... He just, and he's mean to her, and she remembers him having been mean to her as children, right? Like, he, he, he loves her, but he can't express that at all or connect with her at all, right? And then, and he, he doesn't seem to communicate well with anyone, really. I mean, even just random farmers that he comes, they're like, what are you doing here? And he, he, does, he just doesn't connect with people, and he's the good guy, right? And then there's Ben, right, who is all, always has friends around him. Everyone loves him. He's this host, right? He is. He has this, you know, social life. He's, um, um, and people are drawn to. He finds it easy to get along with people, and he's the bad guy. And I was like, this is like a movie made by somebody, right? Who was like John Su, and was like, yeah, those people who can like have friends and hang out and cook cool meals. They're serial killers. They're evil. Yeah, and I'm good. But the very itself uh, got a movie in that sense, right? Uh, in that the this is what the you know involuntary celibates uh, uh, mm-hmm. you, you know uh, and though in, in in that case they usually end up killing the women right here here they kill the men um, but it's very much in that flavor in that the women 
are attracted to the serial killers, right? Not to the nice guys. Well, I think they're I think they're attracted to the Porsche the Porsche driving guy with the big apartment. So I don't yeah. think there's any mystery here. So another thing which puzzled me actually, I thought the movie was going in a different direction because I thought that she. Jaime was taking revenge on Jung Soo for treating her badly. Uh, and something along those lines was going to happen. And But that I don't think that happened. Uh, but that certainly seemed to be the direction which I thought things were going. I did think there was a scene when they're in Ben's apartment and they go outside onto the balcony uh, to have a cigarette. And they had no problem communicating there because uh, Jung Soo is sort of criticizing Ben and they're talking about him and they communicate oh, yeah. very normally and very naturally and they are clearly people who understand each other's background and mindset uh, in a way I would say that that the communication with Ben would be much more uh, not fake exactly but 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 not connecting at that at that deeper level so I, I do think going back to sort of what I said at the beginning this raises the questions of you know, happiness in, in general, right? Uh, this is a movie of, you can only make in a sort of rich society, right? That people are sort of unsatisfied with their lives, even though they have, uh, they're, they're, they're not starving. Uh, they're able to, you know, eat. Even the poor people are able to eat. Um, they don't have any of those problems. And yet they're, they're unhappy. It's a, it's a movie very much of uh, ennui and uh, dissatisfaction with modernity and not having a role uh, to play, right? The people have to make their own lives in kind of this new world and they don't know uh, what role to play and how to, you know, how to be uh, in this. Well, well, I'll just mention a couple of things, which um, the director, I think, has had a pretty tough time of it. I think he was blacklisted for a number of years by the government and I think he couldn't make films during that period. So I think he's had a pretty tough time. I think he is always on the left and he um, has all, apparently his films are kind of very sympathetic towards blue collar people. And there's a scene when, I don't know where they are, I think they're in some sort of an art gallery or a museum or something. And Jun so uh, beg your pardon, uh, what's his name again? Jung uh, Soo. Uh, yeah, he is looking at the, he is looking at the, at the pictures and they are actually of a protest that took place mm -hmm. where I think the building burned down uh, and a lot of people were killed. And the people who organized the protest were sent to jail, even though the reason the building burned down was that the police had tried to break into the building and it caught fire as a, as a result. But because they are barricading themselves in was a crime, the fact that the police were sort of acting lawfully, you know, the danger was felt to be caused by the protesters. And so that uh, these pictures that he's looking at is sort of quite an heroic uh, account of that of that protest. So I don't know if that connects exactly to anything you said, Alex, but I think he does have a, a, a view from the left, but not perhaps the left as would be understood in America. And that's certainly one of the things that rather frustrated me, particularly with the Parasite Review, is that this is a movie made by a Korean, set in Korea with Korean actors, presumably directed at the Korean market. And I guess the same would be true of Burning times 10. And people say, yeah, what does it tell us about the American <laughs> dream? <laughs> <laughs> I think, oh, for goodness sake, <laughs> America at the center of the world again. <laughs> That's true. Any movie that is set in America is about the American dream. 
I mean, one thing that struck me though about both movies, and you know, Abe was saying when I pointed this out to him, maybe it's just these two movies, but the the way that there's something loving about the way the ho- the rich houses are shot, like that's obvious in Parasite. Um, but it's also true in Burning. The few scenes where you see Ben's apartment and the focus on the um, those things in the the tiles, right, in the kitchen and like the bathroom, like it's it's this beautiful house, and it, it he like you know how certain directors you can tell what they see as beautiful by the way that they focus. Like for some, it's like women's faces or something. Like these directors are not interested in women's faces; they're interested in the houses and in the wealth, right? And so there's something like maybe on the left, but he, he, it's like, there's this almost covetousness that comes through in the way he shoots Ben's house. Can I, can I ask a somewhat unrelated question or um, did any of you want to say something more about this? Uh, okay. I, I, I noticed, um, I mean, this is a pretty blatant theme in the movie, but I'm just going to say four instances of a certain thing that happened. So the thing is stuff disappearing and then appearing or appearing and then disappearing or stuff that we thought was real turning out to be fake. So uh, here's four examples. Uh, Jaime pretending to peel fake oranges or rather peeling, really peeling fake oranges. Uh, uh, The story about her falling into a well, which we get conflicting evidence about. Some people say it happened. Some people say it never happened. The cat that she has that seems not to exist initially and then maybe exists and the anonymous phone calls that Jong Su gets, upon of which he can't answer, and just hear silence at the other end. So these are all sort of these existentialist symbols where we we can't make sense of the world because we're not sure whether the actual physical objects around us or the people interacting with us are real or not. So I was wondering what you guys thought of those themes. That, that's the best case, I think, for your interpretation of the ending. I think those those definitely add. Uh, to that uh, plausibility of that interpretation. I, uh, okay, so the phone calls, that's his mother phoning. Sorry, yes, you're right about that. Uh, I, 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 I still thought that, I, I, I yeah, I, I'm still actually, maybe, maybe I'm just wrong about this. I, I, I wasn't viscerally convinced that they were all the same caller, but I, I guess that is implied by the movie. Yeah, and... I did think the scene with her mother was quite perplexing because she has had this angst of phoning up her son and not being able to answer, the, you know, not being able to speak, I don't know how many times. And then she turns up and there she is in the restaurant looking at her phone, checking her messages and giggling away. And it just seems, I don't, I just did not understand that scene at all because she didn't seem remotely interested in her son. Then when it came to the going down the well, I, yes, it wasn't clear whether she had been in the well. And I suppose he wanted to know, was Jaime a fantasist? And therefore, could he believe her? And I suppose we were being, and I guess this was this ambiguity which the director was aiming for. But I guess what we were being told there as well, it could be true because it, it could be true because there actually was a well there. And maybe that was the cat. She said she had a cat. Maybe she really did have a cat, and I couldn't understand it because that flat is super small. So how the hell could you not see the cat? But on the other hand, there was cat droppings, so that seemed a pretty a pretty elaborate hoax if there wasn't a cat. So I sort of came down on the high me was a truth teller, even though, yes, yeah, she did do the uh, – which, again, I didn't quite understand the thing about the mime and quite how that was meant to fit in. Um, one question I just, as I have, well, is there anything else we want to say about, about the two films? 
Abe, do you have anything else you want to add to your demented theory on uh, on the dream? Uh, uh, about burning? Uh, uh, thank you, Alex, for giving me that alley-oop to my own theory because I didn't even realize that those two things I had realized, recognized were connected, but you're right. I think this is even more convincing <laughs> at this point that uh, you have you know, these things that uh, appear to be real or appear to be fake but are actually the other way around. But then, yeah, I, the, in terms of Parasite, um, uh, my ultimate like reading of it, I guess, is just that it's about the, the poor family are really like a one unit protagonist. And I think the rich family are not, it's not a, there's no symmetry. Like they're not equally protagonists. It's about the poor family's emotions. And I think ultimately the arc of the film is like, are they able to realize that they are parasites? And, uh, and I, so I actually think it's pretty simple in, in terms of what it actually means. I think it's like, do they, um, you know, we have this moment when, uh, uh, the dad, the poor dad is down in the basement talking to the guy who lives down there. And he says, how can you live in this disgusting basement? And the guy says, uh, well, lots of people live in, like, for example, do you know those people that live in uh, these semi-basements, which he lives in? Uh, and so what he's, that's part of the, the slow process that he's having of uh, realizing that he is a parasite, that he is exactly like these people living in the basement. And, um, the people in the basement, you could almost see as they're only there to make the main poor family realize what they are. They're like the worst mental image that they could have of what they really are. Like the, the former housekeeper, she says, uh, well, how about some solidarity for the poor and needy? And, you know, why won't you help us out? And the mother says, I'm not needy. Like, don't, don't try to associate with me. And so we see throughout that the, the main family trying to dissociate themselves from this sort of undignified, parasitic, you know, like scrambling for something uh, family, but ultimately the dad realizes that, that that's what he was all along. So let, let, let me give you my uh, concluding uh, comment, which uh, another thing people bring up is Snowpiercer. So let, let me make my contrarian take very quickly on Snowpiercer. <laughs> oh my God. It's <laughs> <That's laughs> not enough already. Leave people on that. <laughs> We're going to be lynched. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, make the case for Bong Joon-ho as a reactionary uh, filmmaker. Huh. Uh, because Snowpiercer uh, starts out as there's been a disaster uh, caused by uh, global warming, right? Climate change. But what is the disaster? The disaster is people tried to fix global warming and instead they made the world super cold. Okay. So this kind of tells you uh, at the beginning of Snowpiercer that he's going to upend your expectations, that trying to fix something can make it worse, right? And then what do we get with the whole movie? Well, the whole movie is a revolution uh, where the, uh, the poor people at the back of the train try and take over uh, the rich people who are driving uh, the train. And what happens? Well, they destroy the train, they uh, 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 kill most of the people, and they uh, put themselves into a frozen climate, uh, much, much worse than they would have been had the train just gone around the world a few more times. Uh, everyone would have noticed, hey, things are warming up, and they would have had the benefit of the great genius who uh, makes the train. Instead, they've actually made things much worse for, the, for themselves. So those are my two, Parasite and Snowpiercer, as a neo-reactionary, uh, conservative, very conservative uh, movies. 
So you think that maybe Jordan Peterson has some writing credits yes. on uh, on yeah on Snowpiercer? Yeah, yeah. I'm fixing things is harder than it well, looks. Well, to go back okay. to your earlier point, not everything has to be about America, right? And I think there can be a deep conservative uh, view in uh, Korea. And I think for, perhaps he's draw. I'm sure uh, he is uh, drawing on a conservative. Uh, Korean uh, views, which we may not be able to pick up on uh, so easily. Uh, but uh, in many respects, it's a conservative country. Mm. So, uh, so Agnes, do you have any concluding remarks to address to the jury? or uh... Uh, Maybe let me say something about, um, something about Parasite. Like, that's what I keep kind of rethinking as we're having this discussion. So you are thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, like, I, like, only because of like Alex's interpretation and the controversies over that, I, then I can think about it. But uh, you know, otherwise, it's. Um, I, I think that um, the striking thing about it is that it really, I think, affiliates people's ethical status with their class. So there's sort of the poor people and the rich people, and the poverty totally permeates the character of the poor people. It, like the four family members are kind of the same. They're sort of like the same kind of person, which is weird, right? Um, they're all sort of resourceful. They're all sort of amoral. And then the other two poor people who are unrelated to them, who are in the basement, are kind of the same too, right? And then on the other hand, the rich people are kind of all similar to one another also. Um, and Nice because they're rich. Sorry, yeah, nice because they're rich, exactly. And so it's a very amoral movie in which the vices of one group and the sort of virtues of the other group are just totally tied to class. In that way, it's kind of a very sort of almost Marxist movie in that everything you are is your class. So there's no independent moral judgment that's possible, right? It's a very classist movie. Um, A non-classist movie wouldn't create all these resonances between the two poor families, right? It would make the evils of the one family tied to their particular choices or something. But it it doesn't do or makes certain members of the family worse than others, right? But this kind of egalitarianism among the classes is, um, it's sort of a movie that asks us to, like, forget about moral judgment and just look at class and look at the way that it shapes people into a certain mold. Your class makes you who you are, I guess, is what now I'm thinking this movie says. Oh, I'm going to have to disagree with that. I know we're running out of time. <laughs> but they, they hold nice because you're rich. If, if that, people point to that, right? But if, if that were a key to the movie, then you would have to show the poor family becoming rich and changing, becoming nice, or the rich family becoming poor and becoming rotten. And neither of those things are showed. So I don't think you can put much weight on that one uh, line uh, because it's not reflected in the movie at all. Wait, no, but I, I think it's, uh, it's worse than what you're thinking. Class is essential to who you are. The poor people can't become rich. It is part of who they are. They are parasites. They're people who crawl. And that is essential to their core. Right, so the idea is that poor, class... there are poor people in the movie who are, you know, quite normal. Uh, so I think it's more that uh, the the rotten people are poor, <laughs> not that the poor people are rotten. But we could go on. <laughs> we could go on. We could go on and round. So yes, so we we sort of reached some sort of an agreement that this is a deeply reactionary conservative Marxist. <laughs> <laughs> and. We've equally we've equally managed to agree that uh, 
burning was, uh, you know, both real and a dream simultaneously. So it's sort of Schrodinger's movies. <laughs> Schrodinger's. <laughs> the cat's alive and dead. Yeah, Schrodinger's movies. Oh, dear. <laughs> okay, well, look, uh, thank you very much, uh, Alex, for coming on to, to explain your take on uh, Parasite in particular and for enduring burning. And I, I hope you enjoyed it once you got to the end, at least. And, uh, and thanks very much indeed, Agnes and Abe, for coming along. Thank you. Thanks, Ross. Thank you for hosting. It's been a lot of fun. Okay, take care. Bye.